Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. That, of course, is the Imperial March Darth Vader theme song. And I think you'd have to be living in a cave to not know that uh, last week, the sixth in the Star Wars series, which is actually the third chronologically of, uh, of the six movies that George Lucas has put together, uh, opened across America to, uh, to uh, you know, a land office business. And I'm happy to report that I attended a screening of, uh, of this movie, uh, spearheaded by KDVS's own uh, Dr. Andy Jones. Uh, Dr. Andy put together a group, and we went to go see it, and I had some high hopes that Lucas would uh, pull out some of them. Uh, I guess you could say his losses of the last three. I really liked Star Wars, really liked The Empire Strikes Back. I, I hated Return of the Jedi. And I didn't think too much of uh, number one and number two in the series, but... Um, I have to say, this one is the third best of the six. Uh, he's recouped some of his losses and manages to explain how a lot of what you see in Part 4, the original Star Wars, came together. It's uh, worth a bit of uh, talking about, which we'll try and do with uh, Dr. Andy and perhaps our own media correspondent, Gary Chu, on next week's program, because we're just a little bit pressed for time today. In our second and part of our third segments today, I think we're going to speak with Phil Proctor. Phil Proctor has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for his portrayal of the role of Howard on the long-running series Rugrats. But he's better known to people my age as uh, one-fourth of the Firesign Theater. So we're going to talk to Phil in our second segment about the Firesign Theater and other stuff. Today's date is May 26th. On this date in history, well, 1981 still counts as history, American attorney S. Pal Asija, a programmer and patent lawyer, received a patent for software. Previously, software was protected only by copyright, making it easy for competitors to steal software ideas. This patent set a legal precedent for software patent rights. On this date in 1953, the first 3D sci-fi film opened. It Came From Outer Space, debuted in on 1953 in Los Angeles. It was based on a Ray Bradbury story and is about an alien ship that crashes in Arizona. And we need to acknowledge an email sent to us uh, earlier this month by Don which uh, notes that since according to Jewish law, anyone born to a Jewish mother is Jewish, Don suggested we take a look at who's Jewish. And it turns out that Geraldo Rivera, 
was the result of Lillian Friedman marrying Cruz Rivera. They named their their baby Geraldo Miguel Rivera, which uh, is noted in the email, funny, it doesn't sound Jewish. <laughs> Here's what I did not know. Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill's mother's name was Jenny Jerome. Jerome Avenue in the Bronx is named for her family, who were Bronx landowners. Cary Grant. Cary Grant's mother, Elsie, was Jewish. His father, Elias Leach, was not. Grant's original name, by the way, was Archibald Alexander Leach. And Robin Leach is his first cousin. David Bowie's mother is Jewish. His father is not. One of Bowie's album covers discusses his Jewish ancestry. His real name is David Stenton Haywood Jones. A couple more I was quite surprised to learn about. Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford's mother is Russian Jewish. His father is Irish Catholic. Bobby De Niro. Robert De Niro's mother is Jewish. His father is not. Don, thanks for that. Now, there's been a, uh, an email circulating around the country that I received, and I'm sure a lot of you received. I was wondering whether it was valid or not, wanted to research that, but luckily the Sacramento Bee did it uh, for me. On their Sunday edition, they noted that uh, this quotation by President Eisenhower uh, apparently is an excerpt from a letter to Eisenhower's brother, Edward Newton Eisenhower, that's dated November 8, 1954. The entire text can be found at www.eisenhowermemorial.org slash presidential papers. I'm sure you can find it. And it's interesting that this is legitimate, that uh, Ike wrote his brother and said in 1954, should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security, unemployment insurance, and eliminate labor laws and farm programs, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. There is a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Among them are H.L. Hunt, you possibly know his background, a few other Texas oil millionaires, and an occasional politician or businessman from other areas. Their number is negligible, and they are stupid. I would imagine that, uh, that uh, the former president and general of the, uh, of the United States Armed Forces, Dwight D. Eisenhower, would be somewhat surprised to see how far people he regarded as negligible and stupid have come in uh, the present incarnation of the Republican Party. I don't normally start the program with a public service announcement, but I received a fax from a, a colleague of mine that I think um, I should um, let you good folks know about. This comes from my colleague, Dr. Andrew Nangalama. Uh, Dr. Nangalama is from Uganda, and he sent a notice that I will, I think, just read to, read to you, that in Uganda there's a great number of orphanage children of parents who have died of HIV-AIDS. Many of these children are not able to get basic needs, and they live with relatives or friends who also have large families. Last December, I visited villages in eastern Uganda, and I was shocked with the conditions in the schools, medical clinics, and hospitals. There is an almost complete lack of everything, including educational materials, classroom buildings, and medical care. There's going to be a mini-conference of Ugandans from the eastern part of Uganda to discuss issues of economic health, educational health, and how to best deal with victims of HIV-AIDS. The conference will be held at 11269 Port East Drive. That's at the Best Western Heritage Inn in Rancho Cordova. This will be a fundraising dinner to take place on May 28th. That's Saturday night from 6 to 10 p.m. All funds raised will be going toward education and health needs of orphaned children in areas of Uganda. 
very worthy project. We uh, we wish uh, Dr. Nangalama the best in that and hope that uh, some needed funds can be raised for some very needy people in Africa. We have some good news to report. Dr. Ignacio Chapella, the UC Berkeley ecologist, um, has received tenure over at UCB. Ignacio Chapella um, spoke to us a few weeks back about uh, what is happening with genetically modified organisms. The documentary he was a part of, The Future of Food, aired at the Crest Theater, and I hope that a lot of you had a chance to see that. I believe it is also available through the web. Surely it is. Article by uh, Eddie Lau in the Sacramento Bee noted that in 2001, Chapella became famous in international biotechnology circles when he and graduate student David Quist published research in the prestigious journal Nature demonstrating that pesticidal genes from genetically engineered corn had accidentally contaminated traditional corn grown by subsistence farmers in rural Mexico. The controversial study was later disavowed by the journal over technical details, although no one disputed the underlying discovery. Of course, we spoke to him on the program about that very fact. Uh, People were quibbling about this or that. Did he dot every I? Did he cross every T? And yet the greater issue, whether the basic substance of his findings was correct, went unchallenged. So... um, Nature, under political pressure, printed a, uh, a sort of a partial retraction to the article uh, that it now clearly uh, was um, correct, and you know I think it shows this was a matter of um, undue political influence. And I'm sure that we'll be able to bring Dr. Chapella back on this program uh, again. We promised you that we would, and we, we, we definitely will. And uh, last week, the day after our program, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation noted that the International Red Cross said it had raised issues of Koran abuse at Guantanamo Bay on numerous occasions and as early as 2002. Of course, Newsweek magazine has printed a partial retraction of its story under heavy political pressure, even though the basic substance of the allegations appears to be unchallengeable. We are, we're grateful at times like this that um, here on KDVS, we have a community-operated station that is given um, great latitude by the University of California, and I think that is as it should be. I think that the public is very, uh, very ill-served by outlets of the media being subject uh, to direct political pressure. That doesn't go on around here, and, and we're, we're awfully glad of that fact. We're grateful for that fact when we can quote from a a cartoon from Newsday Handelsman that appeared in the Bee last Sunday, I think it was. Two panels shows George Bush holding a copy of Newsweek saying, We have a name for people who issue misleading reports from unreliable sources based on false information. Then it shows a couple of people holding, holding documents that say, Mission accomplished, WMDs, Iraq. One says to the other, Yeah, staff members. Yes, I think it's a good thing to openly question how it is that a White House can lie to the nation about weapons of mass destruction and not be called upon to to produce a retraction to that, whereas Newsweek, because because of the actual document citing not being the one that may have contained that detail about the Koran, they put in a retraction. I mean, in other words, that they flushed Korans down toilets seems to um, have happened. But because uh, there's some confusion over which document it was in, Newsweek prints a retraction. Why don't we hold the White House accountable to that same standard? It's going through a pile of papers related to, to this program, things that we've sort of touched on and maybe we meant to come back to later. 
One of them was the idea that uh, under this current Bush administration, there was going to be a revolt of moderates. I actually picked up that piece of paper yesterday, took a look at it and thought, yeah, right, and actually filed it in the round file. But I may have been a day too early. It does appear that certain moderates in the Republican Party are um, are going against uh, President Bush on this issue of stem cells. Stem cells are going to be perhaps the most important medical development of the next generation. And um, thanks to a, uh, a philosophical and religious belief by the president that taking these in vitro fertilization embryos, which are basically just a clump of cells, a tiny clump of cells, not even remotely a fetus yet, and uh, holding them in legal limbo rather than uh, proceeding with medical developments is, is, is just, it's insane. Other nations are, are going to proceed with this, thank God, and all of the benefits to people who are ill, people of virtually every type of disease you have is going to benefit from stem cell research, and it's apparently going to go ahead. The House passed a bill that's not veto-proof. Uh, it may actually get to the Senate. George Bush will veto it if it gets to his desk. And uh, I'm glad to see that moderates are in revolt. And, uh, well, we, we hope that uh, that will continue. I'm really quite encouraged by the headline on yesterday's Sacramento Bee, which says, Centrists stage an uprising. And the House voted uh, voted uh, one voted 238 to 194 to loosen restrictions on federal funding for embryonic stem cell research. Now the public didn't seem to care very much about this so-called nuclear option and filibuster this and that, you know. And it's interesting that um, that the Congress seems to be running a bit scared. The public perception of all of this uh, fighting and all of this determination and digging in your heels and lack of compromise is to be more disgusted than they've been with any Congress since 1993-4. That 93-94 uh, session um, of Congress that generated so much disgust across the nation uh, led to a change in leadership when the Republicans actually were able to take the House and Senate for the first time since the 1950s. Uh, the Republicans are a little bit worried about perhaps a backlash in the upcoming November election, well, in the election of 2006, that is, that uh, that might hurt them. So they're deciding perhaps they may need to compromise more. This is a good thing, and we hope that'll continue. Uh, since last week's program, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, people are standing up to CPB Board Chairman Ken Tomlinson, a, a protege, a colleague of Karl Rove, who's trying to claim that uh, PBS and the, and the CBC are biased. Now, we reported uh, last week that polls, which they're keeping hidden, show the public has a, a fantastic uh, approval rating for National Public Radio and PBS. Nevertheless, uh, Mr. Tomlinson hired a study to look at the NOW program uh, that was hosted by Bill Moyers and go over it with a fine-tooth comb for any possible biases. This prompted an editorial uh, from Bill Moyers that appeared in uh, in papers across the nation last weekend, wherein he noted that, uh, quote, one reason I'm in hot water is because my colleagues and I at now didn't play by the conventional rules of beltway journalism. Those rules divide the world into Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, and allow journalists to pretend they've done their job if, instead of reporting the truth behind the news... They merely give each side an opportunity to spin the news. 
Well, I think here on our public affairs shows on KDVS, there is an effort to report the truth behind the news. We certainly do our best on this program, and we agree that merely giving each side an opportunity to spin the news is uh, is, a, is a pretty pathetic excuse for journalism. From the dumb idea file a little closer to home, we have the fact that uh, apparently Angelo G. Sakopoulos nephew of mega developer Angelo K. Sakopoulos, has proposed to break the ho-hum mold of office buildings along the Capitol Mall, according to an editorial in the B. He proposes to build a 29-story structure adorned by a replica of the temple to the Greek goddess Athena. Yes, our own miniature Parthenon, 29 stories up in downtown Sacramento. In the B editorial, they said... Some critics see this as an exercise in bad taste, to which we say, well, duh. This is the B's editorial. Next sentence. But hey, we want to paint giant water towers to look like ripe tomatoes. Who are we to act as taste police? Well, I kind of hope when someone proposes building a Parthenon 29 stories up in downtown Sacramento, someone will step in to act as the taste police. Maybe it'll be the Sacramento City Council. One certainly hopes so, although given the amount of um, money that uh, Angelo Sakopoulos likes to uh, fund various candidates with, um, he may get a pass. I don't know. We're going to continue to follow that one. I think at this juncture, we've got a lot of talking to do with uh, a fun guy, Phil Proctor, so let's, uh, let's get out now. You're listening to... Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.